Good evening, everyone. This is the Ask Dr. Renee Show. I'm Dr. Renee, and this show is here to motivate and inspire whoever is listening or watching live or if you're watching our recordings on YouTube. In the past, we've had Elvira Guzman, who started as an intern with Steve Harvey at the ripe old age of 17 years old and worked for him for nine years and now has a very successful uh, uh, branding and publicity uh, firm. We also spoken to Cupid, the R&B artist, and we've spoken Chanti Das, who is the hip hop professional. And today we are blessed to have Felicia Butterfield Jones. And I'm going to let Felicia tell you what she, all she's done because her resume is amazing. <laughs> Hi, Felicia. Thank you, Dr. Renee. Hi. Thank Thanks for having me. Um, for those who don't know, Dr. Renee and I have been friends for many, many years, so it's such a blessing and honor and privilege to be joining you guys tonight. Um, just a little bit about me. Uh, I started out as an unpaid intern, and most people don't know, but I started working uh, with Russell Simmons at the ripe age of 25 and was willing to work for free and unpaid um, for 10 months. Uh, to get my foot in the door of an industry that I wanted so badly to be a part of. I always had a dream to work in the entertainment industry. I stayed with Russell's organization for seven years, uh, leaving as the national executive director. And while working for Russell, two amazing things happened. I should say three. The first was finding in Russell such a strong mentor and advisor. But the other two things were... Um, a chance meeting with Senator Barack Obama that eventually led to an appointment by the Obama administration. Uh, I served in the administration for two years as the Deputy Director of Public Affairs um, at the Department of Commerce and then ended as the National Youth Vote Director for the Barack Obama um, re-election campaign in 2012. Um, but also I founded uh, while working for Russell an organization that is near and dear to my heart and it's called the Women in Entertainment Empowerment Network. And ever since I was a little girl, I would say 12, um, I, I always wanted to provide um, resources to young women like me who grew up in small towns with big dreams and didn't really know how to make those dreams come true. So that's where Ween uh, began and how I was born through this vision that I had as a young girl and just wanting to give girls what I didn't have. Um, but then also, again, you know, working for President Obama, um, was probably one of the biggest highlights of my career because I was able to see um, not only from a business standpoint but from um, a service standpoint um, how things work um, at uh, the federal level and so um, that's a snapshot of who I am. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nothing. But she I'm left out some major as well, so I'm balancing all that's those. What I was <laughs> I was just about to say that. I was going to say she left out some very important titles. So, Felicia, I know our viewers, um, some of them are your mentees because they've been tweeting and, you know, Facebooking and texting me that they're very interested in this discussion. So, how did you, and I know the story, of course, but how did you wind up, a little girl from Wilson, North Carolina, how did you end up with an internship with Russell Simmons? You know, it's funny. Um, you do crazy things when you hit the bottom. <laughs> For me, I had dropped out of law school, um, a law school that not only I was attending but both of my parents' alma mater. It was North Carolina Central University. And I left law school um, after my first year just feeling um, within my heart that it just wasn't the path for me. So I moved to New York City, slept on my best friend Sabrina Thompson's couch in Brooklyn 
uh, for quite some time looking for a job and kept getting no after no after no. My parents were calling me daily, you know, asking me when I was going to come back to begin my second year of law school. And I'll never forget not returning, but still getting no's from every job interview that I went on. And I would say about two months after not returning back to law school, uh, I landed a job at HBO Sports, and it appeared uh, on the outside looking in that, you know, I, was, I finally had my foot in the door. And one day I was watching CNN, and Russell Simmons came across the screen. And a light bulb went off uh, because for the first time I was able to see in a person someone who had the balance of things that I wanted in my professional life. Um, he was a philanthropist. He understood the importance of civic engagement for young people, young people be, you know, voting and making a difference at the polls. But he also had his finger on the pulse of hip-hop culture. And it was everything that I wanted for myself, but I never knew how to express. And I finally saw it in a person. And so I started stalking Russell, basically. Um, uh, every, I just utilized all of my resources, everyone around me from HBO and beyond, and just started inquiring about him and doing my research and my homework and finally um, I was given his email address and you know I'm a little old girl from Wilson North Carolina who has no business emailing music mogul Russell Simmons <laughs> <laughs> and I sent him my best five sentence pitch on who I was what I wanted and how I could benefit his company. He called me in for an interview and brought me in that same day as his unpaid intern. That's that is awesome and amazing because um, it just right. It just that doesn't happen. Uh, but you know what? I actually met Russell Simmons on the street one day in New York, and he was so nice. And you know, he actually took time to talk to me and everything. So you know. I guess I'm not quite amazed that he did that. That is wonderful. And plus, I'm sure you presented yourself very well. And it just goes to show you what I try to tell everyone is you will never know what someone's going to say if you don't ask them. A closed mouth does not get fed. It is so, so very important. But even before that, I forgot. I We have to mention, Felicia wrote a book, and the light is so bright, The Girl Print, that you can get on Amazon.com. Um, and it's a great book. I read it myself. But I actually learned some stuff in here because I met Valicia after Russell, so I learned a lot about your college days and stuff. Just name a few of the people that you happened to go to school with. Um, wow, it's so funny because I, I graduated from Clark Atlanta University, and at the time, Atlanta was hot, and um, but we were not. So, you know, we were just college kids on campus, and there were people like Grammy Award-winning Brian Michael Cox, who was seated to my right in like biology class and DJ Drama, who was seated to my left in like English <laughs> class. Um, Mace, Mace and Betha, the rapper turned preacher. Well, that is what blew me away because I knew about Brian Michael Clarkson and DJ Drama. When I read Mace, I liked to throw the book across the room. Yeah, Mace and I were class. I had a poster in my dorm room. I had a poster of Mace that was framed in my dorm room because one of my girlfriends knew how much I loved that man. Yeah, Mace and I were classmates at Clark, and, you know, the list goes on. And so I'm so very proud yeah. of everybody from Clark, and especially those guys who have really blazed the trail. 
That is awesome. But so you go to Clark, and what was your major originally? Poli sci. It was always political. Yeah, you graduated with political science degree. Yeah. So you go to Clark, and you start getting into the music industry because, of course, it's Atlanta and it's the '90s. So how did you do that? You know, it's funny. Um, again, you know, I'm from a, <laughs> the smallest town you've probably ever been to, or not. And it's called Wilson. And so it, it was a town that was divided by railroad track. Blacks on one side, whites on the other. Extreme poverty then and now in my hometown. And so I grew up with big dreams to work in the entertainment business. And I didn't really know what it meant. And so when I enrolled in at Clark, you know, I this is my shot. And while I'm a full-time college student and a freshman, you know, you just never know. Tomorrow's not promised. And so I'll never forget... <laughs> Um, and this was before Google, by the way. It, right, of course. That's the thing. Before, I mean, the internet was new. 96. Let's just keep it real. Right. It was 1996. And I'll never forget, you know, it, might, it may have been my first month, if that, as a freshman at Clark. And I just started walking one day. I knew that the group, the legendary group, Wu-Tang Clan, had a clothing store in the heart of Atlanta on Peachtree Street. And I didn't have a car. My parents would let me bring my car to Clark my first year. And I just started walking because I figured that Peachtree Street couldn't be too far. And hours and hours <laughs> later, um, I finally arrived at the steps of WooWare, which is what it was called. And the doors were closed and the lights were off. And um, I just burst into tears because I felt my dream slipping through my fingers. Because I felt like if I could just show up, I could convince anyone, you know, that I could work for them and, and you know add value that I just needed an opportunity to be in front of someone who could you know have that type of influence and so the doors were shut and I waited and the gentleman it's a long story but basically a gentleman who saw me and saw me crying and you know saw the whole journey that had just walked on a complete stranger um, pulled out his cell phone that was probably the size of this book at the time and he called <laughs> <laughs> and he called upstairs, and this complete stranger happened to know one of the managers upstairs, and they opened the doors, turned on the lights, brought me in. I looked disheveled and distraught, and, you know, I gave them my best 60-second pitch on why they should hire me to work. I was 18 years old with nothing to lose, um, everything to gain. And once again, um, the next week, I started working for WooWare, the apparel store, and worked my way up eventually to running campus promotions for the group. And so my job, you know, at 18 years old entailed everything from picking Ghostface Killer and Method Man up from the airport to passing out flyers to their concerts and events on campus to selling clothes. I mean, you name it, I was willing to just be a sponge and do the little, the small work. Um, I never felt like I was too big to, to do the little jobs, and so it eventually paid off. Yeah, that is that's crazy. That was nice. um, but you know what? You said something that yeah, <laughs> right. Um, but you said something that is so important, and I try. I actually spoke to um, Butler College Prep yesterday. I spoke to teens uh, for Teen Build for uh, the Chicago Urban League Metropolitan Board, and I tried to explain to them how it's so important to get mentors and how it's so important to you know shadow people, and people don't understand that doing those medial jobs, you do them well, you'd be amazed. Somebody is going to recognize that you 
are you know doing such a great job at this if you put in 200% in making coffee you'd be amazed who is going to recognize that and might tap you on the shoulder and ask you you know can you do this and give you a higher you know higher task um, and unfortunately internship is really I don't know frowned upon I'm sure you've heard about somebody some intern sued some company or something I mean can you speak on that like what are your feelings towards that I think that at the end of the day business is always personal and in order to get your foot in the door in order to be taken seriously people need to be able to see your value outside of your resume or your cover letter and so in order to do that there like nothing beats hard work and proven work ethic and so when you take or accept an unpaid internship see it as an opportunity to get your foot in the door and to show your value and to show you know your uniqueness um, because it is competitive especially when you're interested in a field like entertainment or even politics you know there are for every person there are 30 people or more waiting for that slot and so you have to do something to distinguish yourself and the best possible way to do that is to be willing to be an unpaid intern it gives you the best possible exposure access um, imaginable for the positions that you want definitely it is so important to uh, pay attention especially in entertainment it is so important one you're not, there's there's not a lot of jobs anymore because we have the internet and what do we need to hire someone for when the computer will do it for you mm -hmm. and so it's difficult now to even find jobs in entertainment but if you can get one even if it's unpaid you'd be amazed if if you actually utilize your time well by doing those you know medial jobs whatever they may be but paying attention to who comes in the door mm -hmm. and making the right, right connections with who comes in the door it is just amazing now Valisha and I met because I volunteered to work with Ween yep. and because of that you know I met I met Sabrina Mm -hmm. And now, you know, Sabrina's a friend of mine, and, you know, it just trickles over and over, and you know that Sabrina's niece was one of my Girl Scouts, you know, and it's just so crazy how the snowball effect, but I met so many people, and that's the way I do everything. I want I, tr I treat everyone the way that I like to be treated, which is another thing I taught the kids yesterday, but, you know, you just take those opportunities, you know, I met those girls, and, you know, a lot of those girls are still in Chicago, and so I still communicate with them and hang out with them, and, you know, and somebody was looking for a job. I helped her. You know, tried to help her find a job. So it's just all about connections, and it's so it's it's hard to impress upon people how important relationships are and networking. And you know, some of the kids just don't get it. They don't understand. You know, I went to college. I shouldn't have to work for free, but you should do an internship. And internships are so important, especially while you are in college, because the competition is so great now when you graduate. Exactly it's just ridiculous now and that's why there's so many unpaid you know I mean so many uh, college students that are unemployed because the competition is really really hard out there so it's so important to do internships so you had this vision to work for the president and I'm sure you never thought it would be a black president did you? Not at all. <laughs> so couldn't pay me. Um, me money to think that I would see right. that. Um, I don't think I I don't know if I thought we couldn't become the president or something I don't know what I thought but I never would have thought that either but I remember getting the email from you to tell me and I was just floored I said oh my god <laughs> how does this happen and like she said she's from a small town I mean 
I was, I mean, that was amazing. So how was your time in the White House? Um, I'll tell you this. It's, it's very interesting because I grew up in the small town of Wilson, the, the seventh poorest district in the country, um, but grew up to parents who were very, you know, civically engaged. My dad is an elected official, now a United States congressman. And so on the outside looking in, people thought that I maybe had, had a silver spoon in my mouth or had access to things like working for the president. Um, but funny enough, um, it didn't happen like that. Um, I think somehow my parents had the wisdom um, at a very early age um, of not just giving me handouts. They literally made me earn everything and I'll be honest I was upset sometimes I was very upset sometimes because I couldn't understand why I had to work so hard for things that they could possibly just pick up the phone and make happen um, so along that vein while working for Russell again started as an unpaid intern worked my way up the ranks at the time now I may be a director with the company or a little or a little higher and um, Russell asked me one day to go to a fundraiser for um, Congressman Harold Ford and Harold Ford Jr. was a young you know handsome congressman from Tennessee that everyone felt like was the golden child that would possibly be the first black president and so Russell asked me to go to this fundraiser with no notice which was usual the norm and so you know, he stopped by my office one one after, one evening and he said, I need you to go um, to this fundraiser for me. I said, okay, fine. I went to the fundraiser by myself and at the fundraiser, I walked in the room and I was introduced to a gentleman named Barack Obama. And so I shook his hand and I was told that he was a freshman senator from Illinois and I said, oh, nice to meet you. And, you know, I could have brushed him off very easily, but we spent maybe 10 minutes having a conversation and he said you know I'm really excited about the future of our country and really the the potential of young people making a difference and changing the game and I think the celebrities could play a big role in that I would love for my team to stay in contact with you so we could start figuring out ways to grow and build together so again I could have blown it off on the, on the wrong night I might have blown it off but I said okay you know here's my information here here's my card so as time went on and he eventually announced that he would be running for president, his team called me and they said, okay, we really want celebrities involved for, you know, our candidate and we think that he has a shot. And keep in mind that when you hear Barack Obama's name now compared to then, it didn't have the appeal and star power then that it has now so at that time this is 2007 and so they're asking me to leverage and lean on my celebrity friends and relationships to help this guy that a lot of people by the way a lot of african-american people black people didn't think had a shot and so I started picking up the phone um, and a lot of my friends saw I was crazy and asking LeBron James and so many others to support and endorse this guy and one by one <laughs> and it wasn't easy but one by one they did and they started getting behind him and that was due in large part to me making those calls for a guy that wasn't paying my bills for a guy that I hardly knew 
I was volunteering my time and resources to do it. And I'll never forget the night before election day. This was the same day that his grandmother died. I went to a rally that he had in North Carolina. And as he came off stage, he gave me a big hug, thanked me for my service. And I said, sir, it was an honor. And he said, well, you know, if this happens tomorrow, he minus the, this, the eve of election day. Um, <laughs> he said, if this happens tomorrow, you know, we'll be calling you. And I'm like, yeah, right. That's what they all say. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I, you know. Right. <laughs> Thank you. And so, sure enough, he he was elected um, our first African American president the following day. And inauguration came, and then I got the call um, from the White House in February to come and serve in the administration. So, I'll never forget. I was actually in Chicago the day I got the call. And I literally had to walk out of the room that I was in and just scream because it was just one of those moments that you could never imagine. And I just know that when if the, the call felt surreal, um, it was an honor, it was a humbling experience, especially when I went through the security clearance process. <laughs> There's another story. But, right. but it was a true honor. And then working there, uh, fast forward, um, it was an honor, but it was hard, um, a lot of hard work, um, not in terms of my capacity to do the job, but, you know, just the politics involved in Washington, the, the amount of time it takes to push things through um, was difficult, a, a difficult transition for me, um, one that made me a better person, but, you know, I'm used, I was used to the entertainment business where things move fast, and D.C. is quite the opposite. Um, and so that was definitely a learning process for me. That is um, what I'm sure was an, a wonderful experience and uh, once in a lifetime possibly. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Never know. <laughs> so, hey, <laughs> you can work for Hillary. <laughs> Maybe. So, um, uh, I just want to also remind everyone we will take questions. If you just toggle to the right hand, upper right-hand corner of your screen, you'll see about nine boxes. Click on those. It'll say Q&A. Click on that, and it'll drop down on the right-hand side of your computer, and then on the bottom it'll say Ask a Question. So if you are watching us on YouTube, in order to ask questions, you need to head over to the Google Hangout. So um, follow the links and head over there, and we will take questions. So um, also in Girl Print, um, you talked about, uh, well, no, you, what you didn't talk about, what I want to talk about, one, is balance. And we talked about that earlier um, before we got on air. How do you seem to get it all done? Mom, wife, job? <sighs> um, <laughs> I may seem to get it all done, but I don't. <laughs> That's the first step. Um, I think no one ever tells you or there's nothing anyone can say to prepare you for life as a working mom and you know I think that you just learn to accept that you won't be perfect and that's a hard pill to swallow especially when you're someone like me um, and I'm assuming that you're, you've joined this Google chat because you are. We, we share a lot of things. And, I, and um, for me, I t I've taken my career so seriously. I mean, 
since I was a teenager. I started working when I was 15 years old, not because I had to, but because I wanted to. And so I've had a job since I was 15. And so when you have that type of drive and determination, and especially when it's fueled by passion, you want to get everything right. And so for me, my, you know, my 20s was spent building my career and my professional foundation. And I thrived on trying to be perfect. And when you become a mom, <laughs> you realize that, one, that perfection doesn't exist. And you're going to have to reprioritize your life. And so I would say for the first, my son's two and a half. And for the first year, that was difficult. When I was in the delivery room giving birth to him, I was still working for President Obama and replying to emails from the delivery room. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> My husband, who's FaceTiming in right now, can vouch for that. Babe, would you agree that I was uh, responding to um, emails from the delivery room for President Barack Obama? See, the hubby just co-signed that. I got that. <laughs> I'm on a live Google chat, so I'll text you. <laughs> okay. So, so yeah, so this is a great example. During my Google chat, I'm taking calls from my husband. As soon as I hang up, I'm going to be calling my son to make sure he's tucked in okay. But, you know, again, balance of it all, but also accepting that you won't be perfect in the process. Like, a year ago or two years ago, I would have never taken that FaceTime call just now during a Google chat. It would have never happened. But I know that this is real life and you have to be willing to adjust and learn <laughs> to live within the fluidness of your life that, you know, happens when you become a mom. And so that's the, the biggest thing. Um, but then the other thing is maintaining your career and not giving up on your dreams because you're a wife or a mom. That was big for me, too. I never wanted to lose myself. My husband's a professional basketball player who now plays for the L.A. Clippers. I could be living the L.A. girl life right now, but that's not for me. And so I never wanted to lose myself in my marriage or in being a mom because I know that I'll be a better wife and mom by having my own life and by having my own career. And so... It's just finding the balance again, not necessarily just the professional personal balance, but also the the push and pull of finding out who you are in this new role of wife and mom. Um, so even before the wife, I want to talk about because when we met, we were both single and we were just like, this is never gonna happen. And we <laughs> and so we're having a good time. <laughs> we were, we were, we were. But um, but you inspired me because when you you t I will not forget. She called me. It was freezing that day, and I was on my couch watching Amazing Race on the phone with my parents and my sister, as I do every Sunday. And she's like, "Come to dinner. I'm in town." My sister's like, "Are you going?" I said, "Alicia, it is so cold outside. There's nobody leaving the house today." And she's like, "Well, I go." Oh God, she's in town. I'm gonna warm. I'm gonna pull it together. I said, and then it would take like I have an older car. It's gonna take 30 minutes to get it warm to get us. Go I said, well, here I go. So I went, and when I walked in, and you said my fiance, I thought I was gonna hit the floor. <laughs> I said, no wonder she wanted me to come out tonight in the freezing cold. Okay. So 
that inspired me that I'm like, well, the other day she was right where I was, and now she's getting married. So, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, how can you speak to the single women that are like us, that were career women, and that's what we put first? Yes. I'm going to keep it all the way real. Um, one, while I was single in my 20s, I wanted so desperately to be in a serious relationship and marriage by the time that I was 30 that I probably ruined a lot of relationships in the process. Not probably, I did. I, don't, I ruined a lot of relationships in the process because I had myself on this timetable. And while I had my career, you know, top of mind, you know, I wanted everything to fit into this box that I'd created for myself and that society had told me was right. You know, marriage by 30 or, you know, kids right after. And I had this timeline, this imaginary timeline that for me was very real. So 30 comes <laughs> and none of that was the case. Um, I wasn't close to marriage, close to having kids. I was in relationships in and out. And um, when I met Dante, who is my husband, I was 31, and I'll never forget in the very first phone conversation that I had with him, I was very clear with him on where I was in life. And I think that something very real and special happens when you're honest with yourself and you're honest with the people around you about what you want. And the truth is that the real men will step up and say, you know what, I want that too. The men who aren't ready for that, it'll scare them and they'll back up. And that's okay too because they're not for you. And so in Dante, who by the way, probably wasn't necessarily ready for marriage. He may have been ready for a serious girlfriend. But when in that first phone conversation, I said, hey, look, okay, I'm not fresh off the the bus, okay? I'm I'm 31 years old. You know, I've been in relationships. I'm clear on where I am in life. So if you just want to have a good time, if you just want to kick it, if you just want, you know, a fling for the night or the weekend, I'm not your girl. Where I am is I'm ready for something serious. And by serious, I mean marriage and the future. So if you're not even in that space, let's not waste each other's time. And I knew that with that type of conversation came a big risk of him saying, this chick is crazy and hanging up the phone or him saying, you know what, I'm, I'm there too. Let's take the next, next step and just see where it goes. And so fortunately uh, with him, he was ready and in a place where he was at least open to those possibilities. And so the biggest advice I would be is to, one, not put yourself on this clock. And it's so hard not to. And it's so easy now. I know you guys are thinking it's so easy for her to say this because she's married with a kid now. But trust me when I tell you that I met him at 31. We were engaged by 32, married by 33, baby by 34, and now I'm 36. Okay? So now that I'm on the other side, at 36, at wife and mom, I can honestly say that those deadlines that I put on myself were not real. And I also know that had I gotten married a year sooner than I did, I wouldn't have been ready. 
I wouldn't have been a good wife to anyone either. And so you never know why God has the plan that he has, but just know that he is in control. So that's one. And then two is be fearless. Like, don't stick around dating somebody for eight years. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm sorry, you don't necessarily have to do it as, as quickly as we did, but you know, and they know when it's right. And it doesn't take years and years of stringing each other along, of dragging it out to figure out if you're if you're meant to be with each other. And I think that you know when a real man, I'm getting all the way real, Renee. When a real man knows that you are for him, he knows it up front, and he's going to take the necessary steps to make sure that you are going to be his wife. And so for me, I just wanted to be clear on not just what my intentions were, what I wanted out of life, but then it was going to have to have to happen in a certain order too. Marriage, then baby, then, okay, whatever's next. And so, you know, again, it doesn't mean that I'm perfect, but it just means that I was, being, I was very willing to be upfront and honest about what I wanted. That's that was very important. That's very helpful to, I'm sure, many people. Um, we have a couple questions that have come up. Let's take uh, the first one from Don Day. I believe vision is no key to living the life that we want. No, we can't see it with our eyes. It comes from within. What was your vision with creating Ween? And is Girl Print a manual that you provide to the young women participating in your annual summer program? Hmm, good question. Um, so interesting. I went to church today in Los Angeles um, this morning, and the pastor said something about vision. He said that vision is not with your eyes in terms of your physical eyes, but it's with the eyes of your soul. And he just said that this morning and it was such um, an important message for me because um, to your question, Wayne was something that I felt, not necessarily something that I, I thought of or strategically planned out. It was just something that was placed on my heart at a very early age. But then in 2007, when I worked in the entertainment business, but the entire country was talking about the way women of color were portrayed in music videos, once again, that like tug in my heart said, wait a minute, stop. Like, yes, you're making good money now. Yes, you work in a business that you love, but it's a flawed industry. And if you don't speak up and if you're not willing to do something to help create that balance, then you're a hypocrite. And so I never want it to be, to be all talk and no action. And so that's kind of where Wayne began. It was something that was a vision but from the heart. And I just took the steps and I felt like God was ordering my steps to make that vision a reality. Um, so that's where it began. But I never imagined that it would grow to become an organization where I can go to LA to the BET Awards and I see five young women working that are WING graduates. They walk up to me and say, thank you, I'm working here because of you. I never would imagine that I'm talking to someone at the Wendy Williams show and the booking producer is like, oh, you know I graduated from the WING Academy. Um, Seven Streeter, same thing, her manager is a proud WING alum. And so I never would have imagined that the seeds planted through this small vision of mine would grow bigger and better than what I even imagined. And so that has been a true blessing for me. 
Um, and then, yes, um, the girl print is something that I would like to um, certainly provide <laughs> to the girls in the Wayne Academy, and I will. Uh, but we also have a curriculum that um, we designed with um, a, a lady who's got a doctorate, and she's a university professor, and the curriculum is where we really dig into the nitty-gritty. So the book is more like the surface manual, but the curriculum is where we dig in and we talk about the real tools um, and education that you need to thrive and be successful in the entertainment business. Um, while you're talking about the entertainment business, I spoke to Shanti Das about this as well. We as women in entertainment, especially as petite women in entertainment, it can be very, very it's a male-driven industry. That's, you know, everyone knows that. So how did you handle, because I know you, so you were just like me, you know, we weren't putting up with anything. We weren't trying to get down like, you know, some other people might be when they work their way up the industry. So how did you, you know, put those people away and tell them no, you know, you know, how did you stay on the straight and narrow? One rule, actually two rules. One rule was that no is a complete sentence. I never explained why not. If it was ever something I didn't feel comfortable with, whether it was a guy making advances at me, someone in a position of power giving me opportunities for advancement the wrong way, um, or money on the table for a business deal that just didn't feel right, um, I would just kindly say no. It wasn't even an angry no. Just no. I'm, you know, that's not for me. No thanks. And that was it. And I would, and it would leave people dumbfounded because they're waiting for the explanation. Well, why? I don't understand what happened. No, this, it's just not for me. So no, excuse me, no was always a complete sentence for me in the way I handled situations. Um, but then also, I just had a rule that I would never sleep where I eat. So I, I would never date people, sleep with people that worked in my office or in my immediate professional setting. Now, it doesn't mean I didn't date in my industry. Again, I'm having a truthful conversation. <laughs> Even a real. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> Even a real. But in terms of where I ate, meaning where I broke bread, where I generated an income and revenue, never. And anyone who worked with me will vouch for that because I took it so seriously. And you never want to mix matters of the heart with your business because it never works out and so that was another um, way for me to really avoid um, a lot of landmines and I was very blessed in working for Russell that he was a respectful boss who never ever put me in a position where I had to tell him no like he never did anything to make me uncomfortable at all and that's the God's honest truth and so I really was very fortunate in that respect, but certainly the pe other people that were around, and I mean some folks were people that could have changed my life in a second, for the better or for the worse, and I still said no, um, because somehow even when I was younger I just kind of understood that um, it would just never pay off in the long run. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I want to touch on, you're a basketball wife, but you're not a basketball wife, but you are a basketball wife. <laughs> and, um, and actually was invited to be on the show. But um, okay. 
what and I <laughs> what separates you from you know I mean I understand you have focus you have drive you know you you have a career of what you're trying to do so I guess why why not just you know sit on your laurels and be the basketball wife um well I'll say this what many of us have seen on TV is not a, a true reflection of the basketball wives that I know and so many of them do still have lives and careers and nonprofit organizations and do amazing amazing things so I'll start there um, out of fairness for the women that I've been you know fortunate enough to become friends with and, and surrounded by so that's one um, but two when I met him I had a career and I had goals and I had things that I had already accomplished and things I still wanted to accomplish and so how dare I change you know the woman that he met how dare I change because I never wanted to sell him a representative and then all of a sudden now that I'm married let me just sit back and shop all day because that would be living a lie and and the same goes for him and so I think that that was when I just always wanted to maintain my identity um, even though I'm married and you know I could you know relax a little bit um, but I don't because I think that you know I don't want to live a lie and I certainly don't want my husband to feel like he in any way um, was sold a dream or sold someone that I, I wasn't um, but then another thing is it just feels good to have your own you know God bless the child who has his own you know I just feel like you know if I want to go out and buy a bag I want to go out and buy a bag like if I want to you know spend a little money that you know I earned and deserved I want to be able to do that without ever answering to anybody without ever asking for permission hiding credit card statements hiding receipts like you know I just never wanted to be in a position where um, I would have to do that and then finally again I'm keeping it real okay I believe in the covenant of marriage and I believe that marriage is forever however as women you always need to be able to stand on your own two feet if the worst ever happens and so you know again you know knowing well, I mean outside of divorce even he could get injured tomorrow or something exactly. like that so you know you never know and so you always want to be able to be financially independent and sound um, you know regardless of whether you're in a relationship or not and she has some financial tips in her book as well um, some financial literacy tips that were very good um, there's pictures in the book. The book is really, really good, and I really suggest all these people that are viewing us this evening to go get the girl print. Uh, if you have a young lady in your life, or even if you're—I mean, I'm 38 years old, and I got something out of the book. So, even if you're older and maybe you're not fulfilling your dreams just yet, this is an awesome book. And the the girl print is really kind of to give you a blueprint of how you can also become successful. You don't have to be entering politics or the entertainment industry but just a blueprint of how it can be done and it can be done by anybody uh, we have another question from Carlotta if you had two minutes to deliver 
the most impactful message to young female entrepreneurs, what would the message be? And they're hoping they'll get to see you in Detroit soon. <laughs> I love Detroit. I hope I can get back soon too. Um, I think the most important message would just be to listen to your inner voice and to trust your gut and follow it. Um, every time I've done anything outside of my gut, outside of the spirit leading me, it never works. And when I say it never works, I've had jobs that were just jobs, if that makes sense. You know, I made a decent salary, I had a 401k plan, I had the car, I had the house, and all those things. And this was as a single woman, but I woke up every morning dreading going to work. I woke up every morning with that pit in my stomach asking myself, what have I done? And so I would just say to always trust your instincts as a woman. And that's just not professional, pro professionally, but also in your relationships too. Whenever it doesn't feel right, it's not. And so you've got to learn to hear your inner voice and, and to trust it. And so that's what my message would be based on. So where will... Uh, where do you see yourself in the next five years? Hmm. Let's see. Uh, I am in a place where I feel really good about the foundation that has been set. So in the next five to even ten years, I just want to grow and expand everything that I've laid down as my foundation. So Ween, I would love to see, you know, on a global scale. Um, also with my business, my political consulting business, I would love to have another president under my belt <laughs> as a client um, but then also moving into television um, most recently I've done more television I was just on owns light girls documentary just a guest on exhale which is on aspire and so I really see myself moving more in the television direction not just in front of the camera but as a producer and so I'm working on a couple things now that um, should be coming soon um, but then also I would just ultimately love to continue to empower women that's my life's ministry and so you know when I'm no longer here I would love to have a legacy left behind that's all about empowering women to be um, who they are in the most meaningful way and so just building and growing day at a time <laughs> well that there's nothing wrong with that of course <laughs> um, so we touched on married life, we touched on single life, uh, the internship, college days. What, um, where do you, I know you have a two and a half year old now, are you going to have more kids? I think I'm one and done. <laughs> <laughs> I love my child, I love him so, yeah. but being a mom like literally changes the game in your life and I know my limits and I think right now I'm yeah. good, I'm in a good place. Well, that's you good. Know, that's you good. Know, but right now, I think I'm okay. Right. <laughs> so, your son, um, one, we've had all this stuff, you know, things going on with Mike Brown and Trayvon Martin. I know that that impacted you tremendously. What can you tell mothers of black boys from your perspective of how to help them? Um, just, I know as a black person what it feels like when you hear sirens behind you. My heart, I've, I've worked for the President of the United States, and my heart still skips a beat when I see blue lights flashing behind me and I hear sirens. Um, so that just show or tells me that the issues that we have 
are so deeply rooted that um, it's going to take some time for us to peel back those layers and to get to the root of the issue, which is racism in this country. Um, but as a mom now, I think that I have an even heightened sense of concern um, for our young black boys. And, you know, if I feel that as a black woman, imagine what it feels like to be, to be a black young man and to, you know, hear sirens or to be approached by an officer. And, and again, you know, not all officers are bad. In fact, most are good and they protect us. Um, but I think that as a mom, the best advice I can give and, and the advice that I'm certainly going to give my son is to just be respectful, um, be the best human being that you can be, and understand the world that we live in isn't always fair and that racism does exist. I would never want my son to grow up oblivious to his reality. And unfortunately, his reality, which is backed by statistics, is that young black men are at a greater risk than anyone else in society of being murdered, um, and, and the list goes on, and so, and targeted. Um, so I would want to raise him understanding that reality, but within that reality, to remain pure, to remain humble, to remain a good person, um, and also a leader. I think uh, leadership is key for our young black men. Um, I think they want to see themselves in our leaders. And so I think the more that we have um, African-American officers speaking out, black leaders speaking out, not just you know our old school leaders, but young leaders um, that they can identify with um, speaking out, I think that we'll start to see um, some of those barriers come down. But um, I'm also open to suggestions, by the way. My son's two and a half, so I'm still learning. <laughs> I'm still learning and, and trying to understand how to best deal with this as I go as well, because I think at the end of the day, we're each other's village. And it's very important that as mothers, we support each other and we share information so ultimately uh, we can raise our sons to be the best they can be. Now, um, you talked about Light Girls briefly, and I almost forgot about that myself. I watched it. It was phenomenal. What did you, did, have you received any feedback from Light Girls, and, you know, what was your takeaway from that documentary? You know, did you see Dark Girls? I did. Okay. I, I'm going to be honest again. I think that I've heard a lot of people say that the documentaries, both Dark Girls and Light Girls, have been divisive. Um, but I would disagree and, and say that, in fact, it's the, it's the difficult conversation that is long overdue. I know, and, and, and I've, I've seen comments also on the Light, Skin, the Light Girls documentary, and I've heard people say, criticize Tatiana Ali for her role in it. And I've seen people kind of say, you know, well, how dare... The Light Girls documentary, the, the subjects of the documentary, you know, uh, kind of complain about how difficult it's been instead of, you know, talking about the privilege received by being light-skinned. And I think it's unfair because you never understand or know a person's struggle until you walk in their shoes. And for me, um, I said in the documentary, and I meant it, that 
colorism can be as damaging, if not more, than racism because it hurts more when it's coming from your own. And it's the truth. I remember as a young woman, and keep in mind, I'm not biracial. Both of my parents are black. But I still remember as a fourth, fifth, and sixth grader, the white girl saying, you can't sit with us, and the black girl saying, oh, little white girl, you're not one of us. And so, again, you know, it's not to claim a pity party over here. Obviously, you know, I'm not, I'm not hung up on those issues. But that is a part of my past and my reality that has got to be shown and expressed. And so I liken it to or compare it to, you know, um, how in society it's wrong to criticize someone for being overweight or obese. But for an underweight person, it's not seen as uh, critical for you to talk about them being skinny or thin. And so similarly, you know, I think that it's a sensitive topic. I think it's one that needed to be had. Um, colorism does exist, and it's very real on both sides of the spectrum. And at the end of the day, we're all black, right? And as a black community, these are issues, internal issues, that we've got to face and deal with. I was on a Google Hangout Tuesday. I said the exact same thing. I said, at the end of the day, we're all black people. All black. It doesn't matter what country you step into. Right. I've lived in several different countries. We are all black. Yep. It does not matter where you're from. You are black. It doesn't matter what tone. You are still black. And I and that's exactly what that's what I said. I, and I will say this. So, um, yeah, that's what I that's what I thought. I'm the host right now of My Black is Beautiful, the, the My Black is Beautiful tour. Um, and when I talk to the girls, and most of them are high school and college girls, Colorism is a real issue. Like the hashtags that you've seen on Twitter, hashtag dark skin, team dark skin, hashtag team light skin, for young girls is so deep and so real. And so while we know that we're all black and other people view us as black, regardless of the tone, I think that there is a divisiveness that we cannot ignore that exists within our own community. And we've got to confront it. And I feel like the documentary, um, and shout out to Bill Duke, was a positive step in that direction. Definitely. Uh, we have one last quick question, which I think is a great way to wrap up. What is the one thing that you hope that all women, young and old, take from Girlfriend? Oh, man. that The one thing would be that you are not crazy for your dreams. Lupita said it best, you know, your dreams are valid. And by sharing my story in the girl print and giving practical advice, I just wanted every girl to walk away feeling like she was smart enough, savvy enough, confident enough to make her crazy little dream come true and back it with action. And so that's that's all I wanted from every reader for them to walk away feeling so empowered and inspired that they're going to take the necessary steps to make their crazy little dreams come true. Because I know I did, and I'm better for it. Well, I will definitely include all of the information about Ween in the bar video and is there any other um, can you tell people how to get in touch with you Valicia if they would like to hire you to speak 
they want you to come to a book signing, uh, whatever. Yes, of course. Make sure you go to my website, which is www.valisha.org. That's V-A-L-E-I-S-H-A.org, and you'll see all the booking information, cool videos, and all sorts of good stuff. And Dr. Renee, I just want to say thank you. Your show is brilliant. You are brilliant, and I'm expecting even greater things ahead for you. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Everyone, uh, thank you so much for tuning in this evening. And I'm excited to tell you that, well, first of all, it's Super Bowl Sunday next Sunday, so I am going to take the day off because I'm not going to be watching the game, but I'm sure many of you will. So we won't have it next Sunday. Um, we're probably going to have it next Monday. Please stay tuned. But February 6th, we have Paul Carrick Brunson, Modern Day Hitch. If you do not know Paul, please get to know Paul. He is amazing. And you can, um, you, you'll, you'll, you'll thoroughly enjoy him. And I figured since February is supposed to be the month of love, we would talk to the matchmaker and find out his story. His story is very amazing on how he became a matchmaker and all the wonderful things he does chari uh, through charity as well. So I look forward to next week. And um, I hope to hear from everyone, to hear how you enjoyed the show. We've been receiving lots of tweets and Facebook posts. So please, please, if you have any comments, you have anybody we'd like, you'd like us to interview, please make sure you put it in the comments below the video or email me. I always put my email in the, in the comment box. And thank you so much. I hope that we've motivated and inspired somebody tonight. And thank you for joining us for the Ask Dr. Renee Show.